X-ray. It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. We join you not from our respective homes, but here in Southeast Portland from my backyard, fully vaccinated and proximate to each other. Hi, Jeff. It's good to see you over there. Yeah. Hey, Patrick. We would actually even be closer, but we're on the internet and trying not to pick each other's mics up. We, we could, if we wanted to, be sitting to, uh, cheek to jowl, sharing each other's glasses, happily vaccinated, completely unaware that deadly viruses are still running around the world. Indeed. Yeah, I know it's a little weird, the, our sort of current audio setup, but it works pretty well, uh, each uh, recording onto the internets, where yeah. like little people apparently carry our voices, combine them, and magical things happen after we, after we give them to Will Romy. That's right. Who we saw recently. That's, yes. Uh, Will uh, visited Portland. That's right. Will, for those who aren't aware of the producer's activities, has been living for uh, through COVID in uh, Massachusetts, and he was in Portland, and we got to sit down at Wayfinder and have uh, a beer or three with him before he hopped on a plane back to uh, Logan, which is always a wonderful place to visit. Mm, Logan yes, Airport. Indeed. Actually, Logan Airport is one of the worst, but anyway. It's not the worst. No, but it's one of Philadelphia them. Philadelphia is the worst. I've spent more time unwillingly in Philadelphia airport in my life than any other place on earth. No, no, it's JFK. JFK is the worst. No, you're wrong. You're so wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, uh, anyway, we, we failed to mention the weather last time. It's, it's uh, suddenly sunny. We're in mid June, right? It's sudden. It's suddenly sunny. We're sort of getting the, the fringes of the heat dome that's baking the U S West uh, fortunately we're a little bit north, so we're not too bad, but we're going to get, we're going to get pretty steamy here. Yeah, we are, uh, though we, we are just coming off a really welcome, uh, late spring, early summer, uh, rain shower, which, which wetted the forests and hopefully will keep the fires away for a few weeks for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, I should introduce our Jeff Allworth. You are the author of the forthcoming beer Bible second edition. We talked about last time how you're about to go on a world tour, minus the rest of the world, uh, <laughs> to promote your book. That's me, and you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, but relaxing, chillaxing for the summer. Yeah, it's summertime, baby. Nine-month contract. That means got nothing to do <laughs> except catch up on everything I put off all year. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, so... Uh, not only are we meeting here in person, but uh, uh, last weekend I I scurried out to Level Beer because you demanded I come and taste their wonderful cask beer that was was going to be was going to blow me away. So I did, but unbeknownst to me, you, my unhelpful friend, had tweeted it out to the world, and by the time I got there, there were no there was no cask beer left. Yeah. So the power. Uh, your power in local beer geekydom is stronger than you know, or you just don't care about me, which I free, have refused to believe. So, or or far 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 more likely, uh, and you're gracious not to observe this, is that it was just coincidental because I have no juice at all. <laughs> 
So I'm just going to have to take your word for it that it was good, but I don't know. It does bring up a point, which is that we're still just completely bereft of cask beer in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, but now we know that uh, Level has a proper cask that they're putting beer on at, at least periodically. And so we're one, we're plus one in the cask column. So I consider that a win. Plus, you got away days that opened up uh, right before COVID. Oh, this is true. Yeah. disastrously uh but they're still in business and so that's that's more cask i mean i don't know i think the the you know things are slightly brighter on the cask front than they were and 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 i give you even more cask because upright brewing is going to open their northeast prescott tap room which is going to focus on cask Ooh, now that's good news yeah the first bright news since covid hit as far as i'm concerned so portland is is stepping up its game uh it is you know what so we've actually been out to a couple of places recently i know that you're you're visiting uh breweries all over to to give your uh overall opinion about which are the best in portland coming soon on birvana portland's <laughs> best breweries 2021 well, so, so here's the conundrum i've noticed like because of covid places have had to oh and you mentioned we were at wayfinder so this is a good example because of COVID, completely reasonably, I understand, 100%, places have had to simplify. So their menus have shrunk. Uh, for example, Wayfinder, I think the menu, the entrees are like six different sandwiches, things that you can package and send to go and stuff easily. And beer has shrunk, you know, into stuff that you can package and sell pretty widely. And so beer menus are short and food menus are short. But I think that this is kind of a conundrum now because I think in, 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 uh, in Portland, people are ready to get out, maybe. It wasn't as crowded as I thought I'm. I thought it might be at this point since, you know, restrictions have eased a lot. Yeah. But there's also this problem which they're sort of not quite ready in that sense. So there's sort of a chicken and the egg issue right now, uh, which would be interesting to see how quickly they kind of ramp up things. Yeah. I mean, I think the draft list thing is a an interesting uh, and, and temporary development in which uh, breweries sure. got caught with way too much draft beer when COVID hit and they've been reluctant to put a lot of draft beer back on. So we're seeing brews that normally have, let's say they normally have uh, 20 taps of, uh, of draft beer on or only having like 10 or eight. Um, and, and in fact, uh, early in my road tour, I went to migration brewing and they had something like maybe a dozen beers listed, but uh, you know, when you did the QR code thing, but I went, to order and it was just devastation <laughs> because people it was a, it, we went on a sunny day and uh floods of people came in and just like locusts devastated their tap list so it was down to like seven beers or something right and um you know i think we're going to see that for a while because breweries are probably going to continue to be a little bit reluctant they don't know what's going to happen in the fall plus uh they've shifted their models so they're putting a lot more of their beer in package and it takes a while to build up the the draft Yep. list so it's a little bit of a slow cautious return and yeah I, it's funny I, I mean i feel like uh oregon is is very close to hitting 70 percent, having had their first shot um so it, it feels to me like we've got to be coming out of out of this and and moving back toward regular uh life but it does also feel a little bit like um we're all kind of scarred and so everyone's tentative about just assuming that things are going to go right back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
yeah, I feel that. Like, I think, I think we've kind of, I mentioned this to you earlier that I think we've kind of, uh, at least my casual observation, we've reached kind of a tipping point with masks that, it, uh, for a while my gym was allowing people who had vaccinations to take, to, to not have a mask, but clearly people weren't comfortable doing that yet. And so most people remain mass in the gym. Um, but just recently now I've, I felt like that's huge changed very quickly. Like now most people don't have mass. So I sort of feel like people are ready. Um, but, I, but businesses, because, you know, for obvious reasons are cautious about getting too far ahead of getting too far out, far out over their skis, I suppose you can say. Uh, and so it'll be interesting. So I think people are sort of are, are cautiously sticking their toe back into the water, going into restaurants, eating indoors, eating, you know, being unmasked and things. Um, and restaurants are sort of cautiously waiting to see whether it's time to hire more people, expand their menus, those kinds of things. Um, right. So we're in this sort of weird, weird middle period. And there's this weird cultural thing that's happening. Uh, last week when we visited Zach Vestal at Unicorn, um, we walked into the pub and there was Zach and we were all three wearing our masks and we looked at each other and said hello. And 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 then uh, I, I asked if he was vaccinated and he was vaccinated and we've been vaccinated. So I, sh- I sh- we shook hands and then we took off our masks. And it's there's this thing where culture dictates that until you, you know, it, it's almost like it's a rude it's rude to presume uh, that everybody's vaccinated, and so you you want to indicate that you're you're sensitive, even if you're vaccinated, that you're sensitive to other people, so you wear a mask. And it's a weird state. It's it's a weird moment. Yeah, it is. Well, uh, and it's also there's this kind of cloud, like we just still don't know 100% what the future is going to be like. So you're a little bit cautious if you're a business, and people are just being a little bit cautious. But um, I'm hoping that the, the promise in Oregon is that if we get to 70% then all restrictions go away and that'll be that'll be a very interesting moment yeah it's true I, i'm curious what's happening uh in the rest of the country and if you live elsewhere uh you should let us know uh i, I agree with patrick that i've been surprised uh at how i go to pubs that are very popular or restaurants that are typically very popular and and the waiting list is not nearly as long as i expect pre-covid it's the kind of place where if you show up at 6 p.m on a friday or saturday you got an hour wait and now you just breeze right in so that's unusual yeah um, i was a little surprised at how and then i wondered whether that was partly due to the the, the limited sort of experience they're offering in the sense of food beer and food Anyway, we should get sort of to a, the topic, which isn't really a topic. <laughs> we had a, as we mentioned last week, uh, we had an unexpected, un, un, unplanned uh, hiatus in in podcasting, and that meant that our mailbag sort of uh, 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 filled up. Uh, plus, some you know, social media commentary has gone on, and there are things we wanted to sit around and chat about. And we said, "Well, why not just turn that into a podcast?" Indeed. <laughs> and we were going to do it in a pub. Uh, and we we're going to call it pub talk, and I think we're still going to call it pub talk because atmospherically, if not geographically, yeah. spatially, uh, we're 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 in a pub. In our minds, we're in a pub, right? Yeah, now. we need to figure that out because that's that's fun. It's fun to to sit down in a pub, even with the with the noise around. It's still. Uh, it creates an atmosphere that I think is uh, conducive to our enjoyment. Probably not your enjoyment, but we care very little about our listeners. And <laughs> <laughs> As the listeners are well aware. Yeah. Okay. So on today's show, we're going to turn you uh, turn to you and answer uh, questions, respond to your commentary and opinion, and offer a much delayed update on our mascot, Maris Otter, and the T-shirts she sh- she soon she will soon be adorning. Ooh, 
That was some tongue-twisting text you gave me there, Jeff. Sorry, man. <laughs> I was trying to be a little, uh, you know, fun fun with syntax. Yeah. And I didn't think of uh, my, my, my announcer's uh, inadequacies. <laughs> you failed to <laughs> compensate for <laughs> exactly my failings. Okay, all that soon. But uh, we do actually have a few news items. So first, we'll give you the news. For years, it has seemed like our news ticker has been filled with acquisitions and mergers. Now, an interesting reversal is happening. A month ago, Oregon's Ninkasi Brewery stepped away from Legacy Breweries, a collective it formed with Laurelwood and two other small breweries in 2019. Not long after, Lynn Weaver, the founder of California's Three Weavers Brewery, announced she was buying her company back from Canarchy, another collective comprised of Oscar Blues, Cigar City, and several others. Interesting. It is. Uh, I never, yeah, I, I still don't know exactly what the business, you know, I would love to see sort of the business plan and uh, understand what they thought would be achieved by these kinds of loose collections, uh, not completely owned, wholly owned and not completely uh, uh, separate. I never really understood. I, su- I suppose you could say maybe you sort of get in with each other's distributors in different places or, or, you know, you can kind of leverage each other's brand. I never really understood. Do you? Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, there was a moment these these collectives started um, several years ago and when we saw other kinds of mergers and acquisitions. And um, I think, you know, to, to a point that you have made for a million years, uh, economies of scale are, are beneficial. So looking at um, combining things like marketing and distribution and other other stuff uh, has some advantages. But at the, the, but the you know at the end of the day and, and we've seen um, we've seen this with the collective that Duval Mortgat assembled, which includes Boulevard, Omegong, and uh, Firestone Walker. Yeah. That you have these independent pieces, and some some are thriving, and some are not thriving, and I don't know. It, it seems like that probably causes a little weirdness too. So I don't know. Yeah, and the synergies you mentioned, and the economies of scale you mentioned, are the sort of ancillary parts. So they're not like the big, right? They're not big parts, and You're so still, it, these these guys are still making their beer at their breweries, and right, yeah. which is where most of the cost savings happen. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I, I guess that's all to say that I'm not terribly surprised that these that some people are bailing uh, on these arrangements because it's not 100% clear to me what, what the advantages are. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I got to say we haven't talked about the Nkasi thing, but I was secretly quite delighted to see that they were going back indie. Um, they, they have been doing some really fine work. We haven't talked about them in a long time, but um, they've been releasing some great beers. Uh, you know, I think for most Oregonians, people in the Northwest, they're kind of a supermarket brand now. Yeah. But um, but uh, many of the beers they've been releasing are really impressive. Um, and uh, I'm glad to see them on their own. I think that they can compete. I think they're making some of the better beers in the Northwest right now. So good yeah, for them. it is a fascinating sort of, uh, you know, case study. They were an it brewery for a long, for a while. They grew really fast. And as you said, they leveraged that growth to lower price point, got into the packaging game heavily. And now I think 
you're more likely to encounter them at your grocery store than at your pub, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, they've brewed great beer all along. So it's interesting just to see how the sort of, I don't know, brand zeitgeist <laughs> evolves. Yeah. Uh, okay. In other news from our absence, the Oregon Beer Awards announced their annual winners. And I suppose, full disclosure, you served as a judge. I did. Um, you will find the full list online, but one thing that caught our eye was how a small number of breweries managed to win a bulk of the medals. Over 100 breweries entered around 1,100 beers, and yet just 10 of them managed to win 50 of the 84 medals at stake. And those are Breakside, Ten Barrel, Ale Song, uh, and Ale Song, excuse me, uh, who accounted for 26 of them. That is amazing. Yeah, I was really impressed uh, at that uh, finding or, or when I was looking through it. Um, there was a little, I, I mentioned this and there was some pushback online that it wasn't actually greater consolidation in the metals than in past years. And I didn't, I haven't actually studied that, but uh, uh, whether that's true or not, um, there's a real feast and famine thing going on right now. And there's a few breweries that are uh, really producing a lot of amazing beers. And, I, you know, I mean, part of, part of that is the uh the the structure of of uh uh competitions which require that you brew brew for style so um you know a a brewery for example a brewery like upright uh which we talk about regularly often does not brew to style and so it does not typically perform well in these competitions right um and yet uh it's still striking uh breakside won 13 awards um in this last one and uh just you know, beat all comers. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to draw too many conclusions there, but um, there's some breweries that are doing some really fine work right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that are doing sort of fine work across a number of different styles, consistency and, and faithfulness right. to style. And, oh, hey, there's the dog of the pod. Hello, Dog He's of the Pod. He's banging around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dog of the Pod and Jeff Allworth are big, good buddies. So, uh, that's going to happen. Your dog seems to still be trying to get rid of his uh, winter coat. Yeah. Well, that sort of seems like an you know an all year long phenomenon. <laughs> it speeds up a little bit and slows down sometimes, but yeah, fur everywhere is thing. And it, you know, he's a Labrador. He's not he's not a long haired dog, but yet there's a lot of fur. He's got a lot of fur. Well, we should turn to the mailbag, but before we do, I suggest we crack a beer because this is pub talk. And though we're not in a pub, we can at least uh, uh, drink beers. I agree, and we have uh, we have a selection here that was that uh, of different beers that were given us given to us by different people. Uh, yeah, that that happens to you, not me. Just to be clear. <laughs> so, although one of the beers was given to me by Will Romy, and well, he also gave you beer, so uh, you you received beer from Will Romy. So, yeah. just you know. Just saying. Yeah, that's true. But in general, you're the one who gets all the beer. Okay, so I'm going to stand up. I'm going to going to move me away from the mic. But let's let's just go ahead and go go with that Will I'll, Romy beer. I'll I'll do play by play as you approach the beers, and we'll see what your selection is. I'll describe the scene. Well, since you mentioned Will Romy, let's go with this New Hampshire beer. I don't know how how, how do New Hampshireites say New Hampshire. I don't know, but I just tried. Here we go. <laughs> it's pretty good, New Hampshire. Yes, Patrick now has the what is it? Acosta? No, Aosta. A O S T A. Aosta beer. It's an Italian style pilsner at five percent. It is. F- oh well, wait a minute. 
Oh, Aosta is the beer. Sorry. The uh, brewery is Schilling Beer. It is from Schilling Beer Company in Littleton, New Hampshire. And we are going right. to try their Aosta Italian-style Pilsner. So here we go. All right. Now I got to look up Littleton. Where's Littleton? You know where Littleton is? Well, they have a map, helpfully. Oh. Yeah. It's like right on the, the New Hampshire-Vermont border. <laughs> now I'm like in some sort of weird Boston. Okay. Uh, uh, up towards Canada. Okay. Up in the north. That's where nobody lives. Fine, fine beer people. Oh, I gotta, I gotta pour you some too. Ugh. Yeah, I'd be good. All right, now I'm coming over here. But see, I, I can bring my mic along with me. It is like, well, we call it pub talk because it's as stilted and awkward <sighs> as in the pub. All right. All right. Well, actually, this is a good day for it. It's hot. It's probably about 80 degrees now. It's hot. It's sunny. We're in the shade in my backyard and we're drinking an Italian style pilsner. That seems entirely appropriate. Indeed. Okay. So now that we have our peer, let's turn to this voluminous uh, mailbag. And unhelpfully, Jeff said that I'm supposed to figure out how to how to navigate our way. Uh, well, but many people, we, let's start with Maris Otter. Because many people, he says, many want to know about the merchandise. Indeed. And uh, after trying to half-ass it and cheap out... Um, I've decided to step it up and I found a cool company here in Portland, Oregon called, I think brewery branding uh-huh. and they will, uh, produce the shirts, sell the shirts, deliver the shirts. Well, not sell, but, uh, take care of the transaction, uh, and do the fulfillment of the shirts, uh, from their warehouse, which makes it, which checks off all the boxes that uh, I wanted to check off, which means I don't have to do any of that, which is fantastic. And so I have been uh, talking uh, with Ryan at the company and we, that is underway. So we still have uh, color selection and design. Um, and you can let me know. I'm thinking I, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that a number of women listen to the podcast. So I'm thinking of doing men's and women's shirts. Um, women out there, let me know uh, if you want me to do that, because I'm planning, I'm thinking of doing that, but um, uh, it would be nice to have some confirmation that, that some women will buy Maris Otter shirts. No, so, she's so, yeah. I mean, everybody wants Maris Otter. Come on. But that doesn't mean that women are going to buy the shirts. So let me know. <laughs> and we can potentially do other stuff. I think we will definitely do stickers for sure. Uh, and we may do hats and other things first, but we're going to get our dip our toes into the pool with t-shirts to begin with. Um, and also you can, you can ping us with, with uh, colors of t-shirts you like. I'm thinking something dark, but maybe not black. Um, I don't know. What do you, th- uh, so anyway, you can let us know. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Like, like, you know, wouldn't uh, mind me a t-shirt myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these will be high quality t-shirts. And in fact, uh, we will be, um, sampling, they're, they're mailing me some t-shirts to look at so I can make sure that they're finest quality. Excellent. Yeah. Quality control, quality assurance. I like that. And now let's, let's check back in, in the Iosta, uh, Sh- Schilling's Iosta. What do you think of this? Oh yeah, actually I've been drinking it. I've just been listening to you. Uh, hold on. Let me, I think it's quite nice. It's a, it's a, it's a, mm. yes, it is quite nice. They've chosen hops that have a classically noble quality, um, uh-huh. but a but a little bit 
uh, in the the lemongrass vein, yeah. um, but but still quite nice. And and it's got the I think it so presents tell, so, well as Italian lager. Yeah, I was going to say. So uh, tell listeners what to expect when you read Italian style. So way, 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 way back when you can look at a podcast that we did uh, on Italian beer where we talked to Agostino Arioli or we talked, uh, I had talked to him and then we, we reported back uh, what he does. Uh, he created the Ur Italian Pilsner, uh, Tipo Pils at uh, Birificio Italiano. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should really just be kind of like a German Pilsner. It's dry hopped, but Americans mistake what that means. Um, and think that they should make uh, uh, basically, you know, dry hop it like an IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, though, though most Americans will use these kind of classic noble hops. Um, in fact, it should just be a deeper, fuller, richer sense of those hops, not an overwhelming sense of, right. uh, you know, IPA uh, sense. So I think this does quite well on that score. I'd yeah. say that's exactly kind of what I'm getting here. Yes, I would, I would agree. And I also agree with the lemongrass um, comment and I quite, I find it quite delightful on a hot mm-hmm. day. Yeah, I do too. It works really well. Mm-hmm. It's um, not, you know, when you see lemongrass as a uh, written about an American hop, you expect mm-hmm. a very intense one. And this is a more subtle, yes. uh, you know, nice, nice kind of noble lemongrass. This is a, a, a fairly cloudy pills. Yeah. Uh, on, on, on the patented hazometer. I don't know, maybe a six and a half. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> six and a half is a hazy. This thing's like a four. Well, okay. All right. You're right. I'm on the sort of the bottom part. So you have a little more to look through. Uh, I don't know. I would call it a five. I'll go five. You can go four. <laughs> Dispute at the patented hazometer, <laughs> but it's still working out the kinks. Yeah, that's right. It has a, a nice rustic look about it. It so does. It, it, it's like Keller Beery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a fairly refined on the palate. Yeah. Mm. Nice beer. Good job, Schilling. It is. It's a very nice beer. Thanks, Yum. Will Romy. I like. Yeah. Thanks, Will. All right. So let's get to the mailbag. Uh, well, we sort of did, but that was many people. So now we're actually going to. Uh, reach out. Oh, by the way, uh, and I should have mentioned this earlier. I intended to mention this earlier. It was the top. It was the main note I have on the top of my script. But uh, we mentioned. Uh, I I was complaining that you um, you ruined my trip to to level beer because you blew their cask um, all on your own. Uh, we did have three pints of it the day before. <laughs> yeah. See. <laughs> <laughs> and with all your like tweet, twittering and like Instagramming and stuff. Yeah. So thanks a lot, uh, pal. Anyway, uh, when we were there, uh, our new friend of the pod, Nick, uh, recognized your voice and came up oh, and introduced right. himself. And so I wanted to give a shout out to Nick from Level Beer on whatever it was, Sunday. That's right. Yeah. Um, just Nick, Nick and his wife and, and child. I uh, can't remember if Nick's child was a boy or a girl. So, uh, sorry, Nick, but um, they were they overheard us and and they rec- he Nick recognized our voices and in fact I think he recognized your voice. He said voice, not voices, which uh, yours is the more recognizable voice anyway. Yeah, because I have this weird nasal kind of. <laughs> you have this authoritarian, authoritative beer. I'm a bit of authoritarian. <laughs> authoritarian. Yeah, you will drink Pilsner. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you don't know what goes on when we're not recording. 
Uh, it was incredibly, it was incredibly cool. And, and by chance he happened to, uh, uh, they were, they were leaving and he popped by just to say, hi, uh, we, at that moment, we're talking about this very podcast. So it's all, it's all comes together. Yeah. Well, that's part of what made me think about it. So anyway, hi, Nick and family and family. Thanks for, thanks for introducing yourself. It was nice to meet you. All right. So this is from Kevin McAvoy, who is currently living in Beijing. And I'm going to paraphrase a bunch because it's fairly long. Uh, but yeah. he's basically talking about how I've uh, I've talked about how humans love variety, and variety is something that uh, that craft beer gives people. Um, and he was uh, taking a bit issue and said that it may be a hallmark of American culture, and even more specifically, potentially upper middle class white American culture. But having lived in several countries around the world, currently in Beijing, I he thinks perhaps the exact opposite is true: that most people actively eschew variety, which is an interesting idea, because it also uh, runs counter to one of the main assumptions we use in economics. Uh, here in China, the, he writes, the majority of folks stick to what they know, so much so that when leaving Beijing and spending time in another area of the country, the foods and flavors one encounters are completely different and internally repetitive. Each region has its own customs and comfort zones and the people rarely, that the people rarely step out of. Restaurants serving foreign food and indeed craft breweries are generally the domain of the wealthy who have had the opportunity to travel abroad or somehow be exposed to outside ideas. And these tend to be concentrated in the megalopoly where foreigners live. He says that he finds this in other places, Bulgaria, Greece, Brazil, where he's lived. Uh, And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I also think that it's definitely true that um, with wealth, becomes sort of an increasing choice set and people start exploring variety when they can afford it. And that's one of the things I mentioned about uh, craft beer a long time ago or sort of artisanal products a long time ago, which is when you think of of sort of the evolution of beer, beer used to be very local uh, uh, first, not because of any great love of variety, just because it was really hard to ship. Uh, (laughs) It was really hard to move. So beer tended to be a very local thing. And when you were able to to industrialize beer and move it around. It became a sort of a, uh, a single entity thing, a uh, single type of beer that sort of dominated. And then I think now sort of what craft beer is exploiting is uh, part of what craft beer is exploiting is this uh, this level of wealth that allows people to sort of spend more and enjoy uh, different tastes and varieties and stuff. And I think that part is definitely true. Yeah, I have I have a lot of thoughts when this came across the transom it really got me thinking uh and i've had a chance to i i uh, when kevin first sent the email i thought about it and then when i compiled our list here and dumped them all on our our sheet to talk about i thought about it again and um i think one thing that's interesting is the united states did not used to have great diversity so Mm -hmm. post post world war ii uh up until the 1980s we also you know were, were very, we had a very homogenized post-industrial or industrial age yeah. uh, culture. And it was um, kind of after a generation or two had gone by and we got tired of that, that we went back into variety. And I wonder if that's not, uh, you know, uh, Bulgaria, Greece, Brazil, and China all, are all kind of uh, behind the United States in this way. And I wonder if they're if they went through a similar cycle and might come out of that cycle on the other side. And, and I, I don't think that the variety is skewed uh, entirely to the wealthy. I mean, in the United States, um, you don't have to be super wealthy to 
uh, enjoy a variety. I mean, in fact, some of the best food in the United States, uh, certainly here in Portland, um, you can find it food carts and it's a dazzling variety of, you know, I mean, I, I think most Portlanders like Thai food. It's kind of a, a classic Portland thing and that we like Mexican food and, and, you know, so variety, uh, ha- has come back to the United States after that industrial era. Um, the beer thing is sort of interesting because what we find in mature beer cultures tends to be a narrowing of interest. So if you go to a place like Munich, you know, you don't have, uh, the, the, the huge variety you would find in a, an American craft beer, uh, a craft brewery. Um, so I'm wondering if the United States might itself begin to see a narrowing of, uh, diversity in breweries. And in fact, in, during my road show to, um, uh, Portland breweries, I went to culmination and they've really kind of shifted the way they make beer. They make, they have four categories of beers that they make. They make lagers, like, uh, three or four. They make, uh, sour and wild ales, like three or four. Uh, and they make dark beers like three or four, and then they make IPAs, which is half their list. So they have 20 taps and and half of them are IPAs. And I think that's going to become more and more common. Uh, I think the IPA is the Hellas of Munich. And so, you know, it's going to continue to dominate America. So we may see variety go down in the United States too. This may be less cultural and more cyclical. I don't know. That's maybe I would throw that out there. I, yeah. And I also think that there's a, um, a difference maybe in Bulgaria, Greece, and China in particular, there's more of a sort of historical monoculture, um, very strong, you know, sense of who you are and the foods you eat and things you drink, um, that, uh, run counter to sort of, um, exploring variety. I think it exists a bit in Brazil too, but, um, you know, my experience in Brazil is limited. I've, you know, uh, spent most of my time in Sao Paulo, which is a big international city with a lot of different immigrants, um, so there's a bunch of the sort of standard, well, standard, but I mean, um, fairly common for the new world uh, immigrant uh, populations like, um, you know, Italians and obviously Portuguese in Brazil. And so those kinds of foods and cultural influences are there. But there's also like the biggest population of expat uh, Japanese live in Sao Paulo. So there's huge Japan influence, uh, right. Japanese influence there. And so uh, I found my experience in, in Brazil was similar to the United States in which there, there seems to be a lot of variety and a lot of um, ex- exploration. On the other hand, uh, Brazil has, you know, still a very strong industrial beer culture. And so there's very little variety in beer, but it's, it, you know, the craft beer scene is just, just beginning there. So I don't know. I don't know how much is cultural. I don't know how much is sort of inherent to human nature. Um, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to say. I do think, though, however, that the that the consumption of variety is correlated with income. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things that are hard to disaggregate because we have an immigrant culture. The new world is an immigrant culture. So we have all these populations that come in waves and they usually come poor. So um, you have access to, I mean, China, China is a good a good thing. There's a Chinese restaurant in every town in the on the West Coast, um, no matter how small. I mean, and this, this comes from a wave of immigration, you know, one of the very first waves of immigration. Uh, and in fact, my, my aunt and uncle live in a little town called Vail, Oregon, uh, which has like about 4,000 people. And the Rainbow Chinese Restaurant is the one consistent restaurant that has managed to stay in business for the, for the decades. And it's the one place that everybody in town goes to. And this is a conservative, almost uniformly white 
has been historically a uniformly white uh, town, but they've embraced this this Chinese restaurant as I, I mean, I think that they and probably, I don't think it's oh. they, I just I don't even think they probably recognize it as Chinese anymore. It's just a part of Vail culture at a this rainbow point. Rainbow restaurant and lounge, I would venture to guess. <laughs> Almost certainly. Yes. <laughs> I know that is one of those weird quirks of uh, yeah, of rural uh, Western America as the Chinese restaurants seem to have uh, proliferated. And I will throw in just one last example from the world, which is India, which actually has an incredibly varied culture and you can find all kinds of food. I mean, it's all Indian food, but the Indian food is, is quite different if you're talking about uh, North Indian, uh, Tandoor food. Bengali. Um, yeah. Uh, southern, southern cooking, uh, Tamil cooking, dosas, idlis. Like there's a lot of different Kara, stuff. Kara, you- Kerala has its own cuisine, which is fabulous. It really is. So, you know, I don't know. And India is not rich. Yeah. Well, I think in that case, it's that mix of, of ancient cultures that carried with them their own traditions in that case as well. But yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. I will, you know, as I mentioned in economics, it's one of those sort of standard assumptions we use, just sort of this preference for variety. If you have the option, uh, do people naturally uh, gravitate toward variety or, uh, or don't they? That's, I don't know. Yeah, it's a really rich con- uh, topic, and uh, you all should weigh in if you're interested in, in this and give us more examples from other places. It's fun stuff. All right, shifting gears, you have uh, two writers who have mentioned the same thing, which is interesting. One, yeah. the first is John from D.C. He's commented previously, so great friend of the prod, John. Hi again. Uh, you probably know this, but Porter Brewing serves all cask ale at their tap room in Redmond. Uh, yes, uh, we, we, uh, we do know, uh, he says that when he read la- my last email on the podcast, Patrick asked about it getting hot in DC in the summer. It does, but we have air conditioning, no need to drink light beer because of the weather. Uh, it gets hot and it gets humid in DC. I know this, um, from my short time living there. Oh my gosh. What happened to my, sorry, there's like a, a crow. Uh, we have a, a cherry tree above you, which is full of cherries. Uh, birds like to come and snack on the cherries. And, and this crow is right above you. And so if the cherry drops on you, you know why. All right. Uh, uh, anyway, the point was uh, Porter Brewing and Jason uh, also writes in and says, you and Patrick, especially me. Yes, especially me, because I'm the true connoisseur here. I really need to find an excuse to get to Porter Brewing in Redmond. So this is all about our love of cask ale and how to find cask. We've already mentioned it on this podcast. And Porter Brewing in Redmond, we actually have stopped at. We have. And I think we featured it, didn't we, in our bend? No, uh, we, we stopped there on our way back from our bend thing. Uh, and, but we did tweet it out and whatnot. All right. We social media. So that's why. Right. So it hasn't really necessarily appeared on the pod. So we did a whole uh, a city city tour of Bend. We did a series of podcasts from Bend about Bend breweries. Redmond is sort of neighbor town to Bend. And Porter Brewing is a uh, anachronist place that's doing all English ales featuring cask uh in a i don't know how would you describe redmond (laughs) in an unlikely place in a sort of an industrial uh park in uh in a in a west town a western town that's mostly sort of industrial agricultural yeah not bend (laughs) how which brings me to a point a related point which is uh the new school reported earlier this year something that has been high on my list related to uh porter uh when they reported it i'm quoting now nearly three-year-old porter brewery 
Brewing has opened an English pub in downtown Bend called The Cellar, which exclusively pours Ooh. cask beers. The Cellar Ooh. Pub is around 850 square feet and feels nice and cozy with a fireplace and seating in one corner. Ooh. The seating capacity is somewhat uh, limited uh, due to the pub size, containing eight tables and other seating areas, as well as some bar seating, which is it's like a little it's a little close, and I want to go there to there very badly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, the the main place is is similarly small. The, the the pub that's attached to their little brewery is similarly small. But we also had, by the way, J- John from DC mentioned that the the um, the owner was friendly. They were very friendly to us. We asked for a little tour of the brewery, and they showed us around, and uh, yeah. it was pretty cool. And they had some pretty nice beers. They did. Um... It was like a summer ale, I think, that really floated my boat. I can't remember now because it was three years ago or something. And, yeah, I don't and we already it. know the Swiss cheese nature of our minds. I don't remember the specific yeah. beer, but I'm sure they had a – I think they had a bitter on or a best bitter. They, that they, was, yeah, they definitely had a best bitter and it was, was a solid gro- best bitter. And I was moving on, yeah. There was a, they had a, I remember they had a surprising beer that I super loved and um, yeah. All, All right. right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack another one of these beers. <laughs> oh, excellent idea yeah that's the reason why i have the beer expert on the pond here so uh while you're doing that i'll sort of introduce this next series of letter uh which actually um this sort of whole thing generated a lot of response okay before you do that yes quince or grape what what do you oh quince all right absolutely i'm all about the quince i always say this i know for me it's quince yeah I, I was I was ninety seven percent certain you were going to say quince, but I'm just clarifying. All right, carry on. We'll explain in a moment. Right. So uh, uh, we, uh, you'll have to jog my memory about how this came up. But we talked about the use of uh, kvike, uh yeast. Well, in the past, we've talked about kvike yeast in general, which is this crazy what Norwegian. Am I get that right? Yes, correct. A Norwegian farmhouse yeast that's been rediscovered and it gets passed around from farmhouse to farmhouse. It's got some very interesting characteristics. And one of the things that's interesting about these kvike yeasts is that you can use them. They're ale yeasts and they ferment at ale temperatures, but you can use them to make uh, a pilsner uh, because they're fairly clean and they, uh, and they finish out nice and crisp. Okay, and so this series of letters is all about uh, kvike no, quake, quake, quake yeast. Quake, maybe. Quake yeast. I don't know. <laughs> which, which are these yeasts that were rediscovered? They're these um, farmhouse yeasts in Norway that get passed around and they get stored on this crazy thing over the. Anyway, you can go back and listen to our podcast on that. But one of the interesting things about these yeasts is that they uh, ferment aggressively. They're very hardy. Uh, they work at high temperatures, but they finish fairly clean and fairly crisp. And so you can make. Uh, something that resembles quite closely a pilsner using this essentially ale yeast that finishes out in a week or two. Uh, and so uh, we talked about that and I can't remember why, <laughs> what was the, cause we had one, right? Yes. We had one from the Narrows Brewing uh, oh, up in, uh, in Tacoma and That's uh, right. we were impressed with how lagery it was. And then we started asking the question, like, what should we call these things? Cause, cause he called it pseudo lager and we were, uh, uh, I guess the question arose: Can you call these things if you if you make a pilsner with quite yeast and you have it to market in you know in two weeks instead of forty two days? Is it appropriate to call 
call it a, a, a pilsner? Is that, you know, not, not a, not cool traditionally um, and so on. And, and so we were ruminating on that and it somehow provoked a large response. Yeah. And I forget what, what name I tried to give it, but uh, Nordic lager or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, so Zach from Portland writes via Twitter. Hey guys, just finished the latest pod. Enjoyable as always. Why? Thank you, Zach. Uh, regarding what to call a quake, quake, quake. Oh yeah. I need yeah, to figure this out. I yeah. need to figure this out right now. Uh, we've had them on tap here as Norwegian lager and Loki lager. Imperial yeast's first quake strain is called Loki. Aha. Uh-huh. Neither was immediately clear to non-brewing customers the way Wayfinder's Black Pilsner was. The frontier of yeast really is interesting in terms of the discussion about how it, and then you've cut it off, so I don't know what he says after that. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. My partner isn't terribly skilled with the computers, you know. That was a clear cut and paste error there. Uh, anyway, I think we get the point. Yeah. I'm very curious how that was going to end, but um, yeah, I like Nordic Lager. By the way, I think we should call them Nordic Loggers. Yeah, that's a terrible name. Okay, I like. It, um, uh, let's say because um, a it's not like a, a, a lot of people. Well, first of all, it's questionably a lager or not a lager, but a lot of people don't even know what a lager means, right? So, like, uh, they're kind of thing nordic means nothing no one has any idea what nordic means i mean you have to be so deep in the weeds to get oh i bet that this is one of those new lagers that's made with a quake yeast no 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 one gets that i think it's poor communication okay i if it were me and um i i suspect i'm going to be drummed out of the beer world uh, <laughs> once i say this but i would just call that no, that's already happened yeah that's true why does nobody call me anymore yeah. I would just, call, just call it a pilsner if it, t- if it looks like a Pilsner, it tastes <gasps> like a Pilsner. Call it a Pilsner. <gasps> I can't believe you're saying that. I know. Wow. That's the sound of me being drummed out of the industry. Well, exactly, right yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be the first to start. <laughs> Sacrilege. <laughs> Apostasy. What are you? God, it's that's the terrible. De- it's the descriptive versus prescriptive question. Always, always, always. All right. Um, How about Nordic Pilsner? There you go. Sold. Okay, we're done. There are, from now on, Nordic Pilsner, that's the new GABF uh, category. Thomas. Well, there's, there, there's, there's many more suggestions here. Yeah, are you going to have this beer so I can talk about it at some point? Oh, you opened the... Well, why didn't you give me some? I did. I put it right there. We talked about the quince. See, now, now this is really becoming pub talk. One of the problems was I only have one glass. So I had to I know. finish my Italian Pilsner right quick. Here we go. Oh, nice! You're getting. Aside from the the airline flying overhead, uh, that work was working pretty well. <laughs> in situ, baby. We're we're here in my backyard. This is the sounds of the sounds of Southeast Portland, Oregon. It, it's sort of like beer garden talk more than pub talk. You're right. So that we'll call it that. Winter, maybe. winter, dare, cherry tree. So a quince is sort of like a an apple pear thing. I know it's a weird thing. It is, a, but it's got a great name. It That's does. All I care about a quince. And uh, we are drinking uh, Cold Fires uh, Eugene, uh, Oregon. Eugene Oregon's barrel aged stuff, uh, and they they brought three beers over for me to try because I believe they are listen, listeners of the podcast. And wow. back during nine months ago oh, or something, good when. Um, the GABF happened. We tried to get as many of the uh, winners as we could, and 
very careful listeners will remember that Oregon swept the like barrel aged saison category, whatever it was called, and and one of the winners was Cold Fire. Uh, and here we had, and they, they reminded me. That's right. Now I remember this. That it was quite a surprise. I didn't realize Cold Fire was doing these kinds of beers. Yeah, and they they might even have placed two beers in those categories. It was just it was a real debut. Uh, yes, and, I think they I think they medaled twice. Yeah. At least. Uh, this is fantastic, by the way. It is, and I am not f- quite familiar enough with quince to be able to tease it apart from the fermentation characteristics. Mm. I mean, yeah. there's there's a fruity note there, but there's always a fruity note, right? So it's a uh, it's 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 certainly very harmonious with the base beer. Yeah, but but you're right about quince ha- sort of has that appley pear-y mm-hmm. taste. So I feel like. You're right. I wouldn't necessarily be able to parse it into its component parts, but I definitely taste that note. Yeah. Yeah, it's a particular character of fruitiness. But it's a nice – but what I like about it is, yeah, it's subtle. It's not overpowering, and it's used very nicely in this beer. It's um, uh, it's tart enough, um, but it doesn't need to be super tart to counteract a, a very sweet fruit. So it's it's really subtle and nice. Totally. Wow, that's that's excellent. Now I understand where the metal's coming from. <laughs> Good yeah. job. All right, I, I should I should continue, however, with our letters because we'll never, we'll never get through all these. Uh, not that we have to, uh, but now, of course, um, since we had to restart the the recording, we'll have absolutely no idea how long we were. <laughs> so I'll just keep going. This this episode might take two and a half hours. Just hang in there, listener. Yes. Yeah, right, Thomas the, Horton. The, the, just for your edification, the first recording stopped at 42 minutes. Oh, thank you. Now, now everybody knows. Yes. Oh, yeah. We uh, There was a, another user error there, which we have hopefully uh, concealed cleverly, except now that we're talking about it, because <laughs> we break the fourth wall always. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not even good enough to try and pretend we didn't screw up. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of my point. Hey, look, another plane. All yeah. right, Thomas Horton writes, I haven't and seen too many. Even, you're really far from any airport. What the hell is our, what are, what are all these things coming over? I'm not where, uh, it's not necessarily proximity to the airport, but whether you're in the patterns. The paths. Exactly. The path, right? And so yeah. all these, well, these are weird. I don't know what these guys are doing. But there are a number of, you know, depending on way, the way they're landing air, air, airplanes at, uh, at PDX. There's a bunch of those planes coming from the south that'll just fly right over top, because they basically fly fly up the Willamette River. Ah, uh, it's true. Okay, Thomas and I'm Horton. Right, and I'm right by Lawrence. Okay, I think it's like the fourth time I've tried. Sorry, Thomas. Thomas Horton writes. I haven't seen too many breweries jump on this trend in BC yet, British Columbia. Nice, but the ones that have are usually calling them Kvike Lager. Kvike Lager. God, I can't get this right. I just it's. I just can't stop the phonetic impulse. I know. Quike. Quike? Quike. Last fall, I homebrewed an Oktoberfest with Quike strain called uh, Crispy from Canadian Yeast Lab. I thought it came out great. It is maybe lacking in some of the subtle flavors that lager yeast throws out, but it was ready in under two weeks instead of over four, so I'm happy with the trade-off. Indeed. Yeah, so this is the thing. If you're a commercial brewery, getting a getting a, a lager-ish thing out. <laughs> out so quickly uh is a super boon and i think the real question to go back to my uh blasphemous earlier comment is will they taste 
close enough to Pilsner to descriptively be called Pilsners, or will they be Pilsner E, but not quite Pilsners? And in which case, maybe you shouldn't call them Pilsners. I, I, I do get that that's the case. But if they taste like Pilsners, look at you backtracking so quickly. Yeah, they taste like Pilsners. Call them Pilsners. Oh yeah. <laughs> but that's a good point, actually. You know, uh, it's not like the yeast doesn't impart any character to Pilsners. That's right. And so uh, that is a difference in, in discerning uh, customers might might be able to pick that out. Uh, Margie Gator, is that what you meant by hard G? Yeah, Margie. Don't you remember Margie? We had the debate, and you were say, you said, "Oh, it's." I bet it's Margie, and I said because because she she gave the note of, of hard G, and I said no, it's clearly Margie, and then she immediately after that aired and said yes, you were correct. Margie, yes, yes. this is like the one victory you're going to take today. Okay, yeah, you were exactly. right about Margie. So hi, Margie. Uh, I'm listening to the Innovations Pod while doing some dishes and had to stop during the fast vlogger conversation to say, it has to be, oh God, <laughs> you didn't do this to me again. Uh, schnelles, schnell equals fast in German, and well, you get the rest. I'm sure I'm not your only German-speaking listener to have thought of that. Possibly, but you are the only German speaker, Margie, who, who emailed. So <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, right. I Alan Taylor a long time. So Alan, Alan has to weigh in on the schnelles. I like it. Schnelles. I do. I, I do that too. is awesome, actually. <laughs> it. It's pretty badass. It is also completely obscure to anyone who does not speak uh, German. So it, it does not. No, no, it's not. It's it's completely apparent to anyone who grew up watching Hogan's Heroes. Schnell, Schnell, Schnell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and now we really dated ourselves. Yeah, I know. Okay, even so the six was listeners pretty, who get that reference. Hi, I we were quite little for even we were quite little for uh, Hogan's Heroes. So that's funny. <laughs> All right, and Parker Rush, and he's the guy who sent us the pseudo logger that that kicked off this whole thing. Parker did, yes, from Narrows Brewing. It's awesome to hear you and Patrick talk about our pseudo lager. We've got a fresh bash in cans. The version is called 253 Pseudo Pills. It's a Pilsner malt with a bag of carafoam and all Hallertau middle fruit. This one is a more of a classic Pilsner. We're continuing to refine the recipe, but I'm happy with it. I so, really I really want to try that beer. Well, yeah, so I'm saying that's getting closer and closer to your like Pilsner thing. Yeah. You'd probably say, yeah, just call it a Pilsner. Well, I got to taste it. Because the thing is, I don't know if you remember. In fact, I know you don't remember because you remember nothing. But the pseudo lager that he sent before was uh, hopped with Ella, uh, which is a very fruity hop. And of course so, I remember that. Absolutely. You have no memory of yeah. that. Fruity hop, fruity hop, Ella. That's from um, outside Bavaria in the... No, Ella from New Zealand. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. I remember that. <laughs> like it was yesterday. Win two. <laughs> I'm taking it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was so fruity. The hop was so fruity that we Jeff, couldn't really tell. One must not get too serious about beer. That's, that's the story of my life, my friend. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anyway, this the original pseudo lager was a little bit too fruity because of the hops, so it concealed the the, the pure lager character. But with Mittelfru, oh well, we will be able to tell for certain whether it's a proper pilsner or not. And I'm keen to try it to that because I feel like that will establish once and for all whether it's a proper pilsner or yeah. a proper lager, uh, kind of like 
yeast strain that could be made uh, so that we could call it a pilsner should we choose to back to my original blasphemy <laughs> parker that's uh that's jeff like begging begging you please send him a can of this beer uh, actually send him two maybe he'll give me one, me one. Yeah, no just send one <laughs> <laughs> you rat bastard. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I will say that uh, this, this ends our, our quike letters, um, yeah. so we can get off that. But it is pretty amazing how quickly this quike yeast is now like being used by craft brewers. And you know it's got some clear commercial advantages. And it'd be really interesting to see what kind of things people come up with with this fascinating yeast. And if you, haven't, if you don't know the story, do go listen to that pod because it's fascinating. It's true, and uh, I can't remember in my my, my brewery roadshow lately uh, which brewery it was, but somebody had a, a, like a pale ale or something that was made with Quake, and they were going for the fruity side of the yeast, ah. and it was it was really good. So I, I it is I mean these it, it's not a single strain. There's many different kinds of Quake right. strains, but um, boy, I I do think it presents a huge opportunity for brewers to make very interesting beers. So. I'm excited about this. It's one of the one of those cool things that's developed, cropped up in the world of uh, brewing that got has gotten me all excited. Yeah, and unlike, well, I don't want to be negative, <clears throat> but we had this recent podcast, and there's all these kind of um, uh, engineered yeasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one that's ancient and yeah. just has these special properties that have been essentially like through natural selection. What you have now is this incredibly hardy yeast that survives drying out and lasting all summer and so on. So it survives. Uh, it, it produces no esters at low temperatures. It produces vibrant esters at high temperatures. It's, yeah, it's, it's a amazing, wild yeah. strain. It's cool. All right. So moving on, uh, a great friend, well, maybe one of our best friends of the pot, Jason Wells, writes, yes. I've been thinking a lot about the Pilsner tasting you and Patrick did last year, and I think it has great potential to be an even bigger competition this year. Great minds think alike because we've been talking about this and an IBA competition. That's true. So many great Pilsners coming from all over the state. Yes, that's true. What would you think about uh, breaking the beers down into four categories? Also, great minds. Czech, German or Bohemian, Italian and French, and American. And note that Jason got French in there after we uh, ended our conversation with Zach last week. I, I mentioned the the French uh, Pilsner or the Alsatian Pils, which sounds like a very cool thing, which I read about. I've never tried one made with Strisselspalt and, I don't know, other French techniques. Yes. I don't think that was part of the recorded pod, however. So No, it was not. Uh, That's why I mention it now. Okay. Yeah. So we, we chat about that. So uh, he says, then you could take the top one out of each category plus the next two highest scores, meaning that there might be two Czechs, one German, two Italians, one American, or possibly one, one, three or whatever for a final tasting to crown the champion. That way, if there's several particularly strong entrants in any one category, they don't get left out. Yeah. So this was an issue with our last, uh, last year's tasting, which we had, we had mixed them all up and we just called them all Pilsners. And then we had... Though we, we really did try to eliminate American Pilsners. We really tried to limit it to German and Czech. Yes, uh, this And is then true. We, we got one American in there. I was like, well, this sticks out like a sore thumb. Yes, this is true. This is true. Uh, but we did have a big uh, conundrum, which is that we had a fantastic Czech, very Czech Pils, which ended up being our champion of champions. And that's just because Jeff and I adore Czech Pils, uh, but some really great German styles as well and i felt guilty having to crown the check even though it was so different uh so uh i think we in fact might 
do this or wow. So I'm going to describe to the listener what's happening over on the other end of the table here, which is uh, a champagne, noted beer expert, writer. Uh, hey beer, man, you cannot blame this on me. Beer savant has opened a bottle of beer and it has cascaded all over himself and uh, my patio and. I, all I did was pull the cork out. Yeah, that but was... you, but yeah, but a, a, a real beer person would have anticipated what was about <laughs> to happen. You, however, <laughs> you ever I, just end up soaking wet. I take no credit for that. All right. So, what did you what did you open that created such an amusing <laughs> interlude for me? Uh, had I only been recording this, I know that was. Uh... All right, so you just opened the Wild Series from Sun River Brewing in Sun River, Oregon, the Wild Series Dry Hopped Saison. It was a cork and cage, your first clue. Yep. Uh, and I'm being a little harsh. He he did manage not to get it all over himself. Uh, so now that you've so dramatically opened this beer, what do you think? Uh, I think that uh, I'm only smelling it so far. That's a good start. So what I'm, I'm guessing what happened here is uh, this 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 is one of those refermentation in the bottle problems where it little bit maybe have over fermented. Uh, we never have talked about diastatic yeast, so there there could be an issue with diastatic yeast. It could be the Brettanomyces. I'm not sure. Is there are, is there are there Brett in this? Oh, you're just going to drop diastatic yeast and not explain what you're talking about? I'm coming back around, but I oh. want it before. I will read while you explain that. Are yeah. there Brett? Is there Brett? It does not cop to Brett. Diastatic yeast is a... Oh, no. It does have Brett. Okay. So it could, it's probably more likely than Brett. But um, Saison yeasts are often diastatic yeast, which is uh, that they, t- they do this interesting thing. Normal yeast uh, take in sugars, digest it, and excrete carbon dioxide and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, diastatic yeasts are weird and they will do this thing where they like squirt their stomach acid out into the beer. That's a lovely visualization of the process of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of what happens. <laughs> um, and then that stomach acid breaks down the complex, sh- uh, carbohydrates that normal yeast would not normally take into itself to eat. And then they, they start, uh, when they reconsume it, it's been broken down, and so uh, they can attenuate far further. And this process will continue in the beer. And so sometimes, uh, in saisons and other styles, if you if you package too quickly, um, it will continue to ferment. And they, these are one reason why dry, uh, saisons are so dry is because they attenuate past uh, normal yeast because they eat these complex carbohydrates that uh, other yeast strains don't. Uh, eat, and so diastaticus is diastaticus yeast strains, which are just Saccharomyces, but they're a particular variety. Can be a little bit of a challenge in the industry, and there's a big uh, effort to address them. On the other hand, they make really dry beers that are super cool, so I kind of like them, and I don't think they need to be fixed. So uh, I think basically what you're saying is that these are yeast that eat their own excrement. It could be. I don't know. <laughs> As we've established, I am not a scientist. Uh, well, so so this one is um, uh, conditioned in in um, 
uh, in Oregon Pinot barrels that have Brett. Yeah, so, so uh, this is another Brett. This is another highly celebrated brewery in 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 Oregon, uh, Sun River, who wins tons and tons and tons of medals, yeah. and um, they uh, made a shipment uh, to me, which is fantastic. And, um, including many of their regular beers, but then, uh, a couple of barrel aged beers. And this was one of the barrel aged beers. And since we're, we kind of got a thing going on here, but although we had the, the Italian Pilsner, we kind of had a thing of, of barrel aged saisons. I thought I'd throw it in there. So there it is. This is freaking fantastic. It's really good. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, like it, it, foaming over or not, man. Wow. It over, it, it's a little, it, 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 it it continued to ferment a little bit more than they wanted in the bottle, but um, the base beer is is uh, is super good, and I think it you oh. know it didn't it didn't attenuate so much. It, it on the palate, it's it's fine. It's not over attenuated. Wow, I'm. It's got so many flavors that are all essentially coming from the yeast, right? Yeah, and it's the, interesting. And the Pinot barrels. You wouldn't have. I've never guessed that this has been in Pinot barrels. Here. Is it, it's it's dry hop though. That's what they describe it, right? Yes, the dry hop stays on. You're you're right. So there is a lot of flavors probably coming from that as well. But I'm not getting that. That's what I was going to say. It's to me, I'm with you. It's all fermentation flavors. Mm-hmm. That's what I get. Yeah, pineapple, a big pineapple note. Absolutely. A little bit of lemon, maybe, on the t- on the finish. Yeah, there's that. Uh, that classic uh, white pepper that you get from wild ales, kind yes. of a brine and white yeah. pepper. And, mm. and by the way, this is only 6%. It's such a I rich. I bet it's actually a little stronger than 6% <laughs> after that secondary fermentation. <laughs> but not much more. Yeah, we're not. We're not. We're not telling. Uh, that is phenomenal, by the way. Yeah. It, I'm, it, I'm I, really, really liking this beer. It's it's one of those wild ales, and it really reminds me of Belgian lambics uh, that has both the intense fruitiness that you get from uh, the the wild uh, yeast, mm-hmm. the Brettanomyces that produces all these esters, but then there's also that savory undertone, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and the two really play nice together. So it uh, um, it's all it's all fruity up front, and then it kind of fades to this dry, savory, and it's very nice. Yeah, it clearly has added a huge note to this beer. But you would, I would never have guessed it was it was aged in oak pinot barrels. I mean, I a think, little bit of grape. I, th- I think there's some vinousness there. Yeah, I got. Yeah, I think yeah, a little I think bit. So. But I wouldn't have been my. Does it say, is it, does it say Pinot Noir or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, good point. Did it say Pinot Noir? No, it only says Pinot. So you're right; it could be Pinot Blanc, which actually would make more sense. Yeah, it it, it does have a more of a white wine flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. You're right. I was thinking Pinot Noir, but yeah. well, that's that's um that's lovely. That's really that's lovely. a dandy. Yeah. yeah, it's a good it's a good summer sipper. Yeah. So hey, three for three so far. Indeed. <laughs> okay, so we we've talked about redoing our our great Pilsner off, and now there's about 86 of them we could choose from. I know. In I Oregon. think what we need to do. So I think we. I. I. I take uh, Jason's point. I think we need to uh, do some categories. I think what we also need to do is we need to, in order to make it not just a repeat of Jeff and Patrick's favorites, uh, we need to bring in a ringer or two. Ooh. Yeah. That would be a good idea. Yeah, I think we need to maybe bring in an Alan Taylor or a. Uh, uh, 
Tobias Hahn from Rosenstadt. I bet he would show up. He's a has the, the both of those two guys. Well, they might well, they might favor the Germans. Do we have any check? I don't know. Anyway, will <laughs> any check brewers in town? We'll we'll have to think about that. But it might be nice to bring uh, to to widen it just a little bit. Uh, yeah, but so. that's okay if we split the categories. So we did check as a separate category. Then they could they could be. That's right. We can we can make sure that they don't taste their own beer, which is how they do it in the OBAs. Yeah. Can't judge your own beer. I wonder if they'd even pick out their own beer. Oh, I bet they could. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they could. Uh, yeah, and we've also talked, and Jeff's also been uh, agitating for a great IPA off, which I think would be phenomenal. That would yeah. also require some some real thought about how we're going to categorize these things and what we're really going to judge. But And I think just as a starter, as a starting bid, and then I throw it open to you, the listeners, uh, what you would be interested in, because that's really ultimately what we care about. Uh, but one thing I was thinking is it would be great if we did something, not, not, not necessarily flagships, but like standard IPAs. Yeah. So these are not one-offs that you can never buy. <laughs> you know, the, it's, it's one great IPA that somebody made once and can, it will never reappear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. Like I don't, yeah, I think we should avoid the one-offs. It's yeah. that, the point is, yeah, this is the beer that you keep producing. Yep. Although, yeah, for some breweries, that's a constantly moving target. So, but that's okay. It's okay. It's whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I recently had a Breakside IPA, which I hadn't had in probably three or four years, and it did not taste like I remembered at all. I think they really tweaked that, and I super loved it. I always used to say, uh, Wanderlust is my favorite of their two flagships, and now I don't know. Well, I used to kind of downplay Wanderlust and say, uh, it's a much inferior to the standard. And then I had a Wanderlust recently <laughs> and thought, oh my goodness, this is an amazing beer. But you're, you're, I'm sure you're 100% correct, which is over the time, over that period, they have tweaked the recipe. And That's right. Okay. So uh, Pete via Twitter. So I'm getting back to the mailbag, by the way. <laughs> Pete via yeah. Twitter got properly spooked at around 60 minutes on the latest Beer Vana Pod. You need to warn us about this stuff. Yeah, I don't know what if you happened? heard that. It was one of those, like, we had this on one other podcast. That was, yeah, but that was like podcast number six or something. I we know. were real amateurs. But it happened again, and it was exactly the same. It was like the, it was like a demon <sighs> from hell. Oh, the Phantom is back. It is. I, oh. I, I, so, I, dear listener, we're haunted by the spirit I, of exactly. some old Belgian <laughs> brewer or something like that. <laughs> Yes, the podcast is haunted. I like it. The podcast, yes, the podcast is haunted. Is haunted. And, and from Maybe time to time, we should figure out what that what that early episode was, where it showed up. It's true. We should actually, oh, this would be cool. We could have like secret merch of the Phantom. The Phantom of the Pod. The Phantom, yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> the Phantom of the Pod. <laughs> okay, so here okay, we go. So, we're, so we are way over, and this could be a bonus. I don't know. Yeah. yeah well, uh, dear listener, those of you who have stayed, now you get the true meat on the of the podcast here because this is what what jeff writes the great emerson middle market tweet which my dear friend and and uh, nemesis uh took some little offhand comment frenemy frenemy (laughs) offhand comment uh and uh, retweeted it and created uh and blew up my timeline on twitter uh, which i'm not used to because nobody pays any attention to anything i ever have to say 
Uh, so, so this uh, is what you wrote here. I'll read it since it's your tweet. Yeah, please, yeah, thank you. So, so Patrick, he he wrote he wrote this, and I think it's totally adequate uh, as it is. And then he wrote a. If you want to go back and look at his timeline on uh, Beeronomics at Beeronomics on Twitter, you can see his his more expanded version, where he wanted to clarify because uh, he was just tossing a thing off and he didn't realize he was on the internet and that people could see it. Um, <laughs> So this is what he wrote originally. So Nothing I, think that- I do, I, I ever admit that anyone could ever actually read or hear, <laughs> which is what comforts me because I would never want this stuff to be in public. Exactly. So I think there is a national market for macros and local markets for quality craft, but the national craft market, beers that are more craft-like, uh, but uh, please from coast to coast and cost less than locals, my middle market, I don't think it exists. Sierra Nevada is Moby Dick. So your point here is that uh, trying to create uh, a national craft brand that is that that combines cost efficiency and quality right. is is not a category that really uh, exists much beyond maybe like three or four brands. Yeah, I mean, I essentially think that's what the big macro brewers have been trying to do. First, they tried to do it in their own brand, you know, Budweiser American Ale, for example. Right. Then, and you know, the, with a couple successes, sort of like uh, Blue Moon. It's probably the most notable, maybe. And then they tried to buy them and like take Goose Island IPA. And this is going to be now everybody's favorite IPA from coast to coast. And right. I just feel like all of those things have never quite panned out the way. You know, they look at this rapid rise of craft beer and think, oh, we can do this. But what we have is incredible quality and consistency. We have incredible cost savings. And we can do this at a price point that would beat anybody locally. And we would give them just as good a beer. And it never quite worked. Yeah, and That's you, my, took, my you did take heat online, and I think uh, I will. I'm going to defend you because I think the people online uh, pointed out things like Voodoo Ranger and Hazy Little Thing and a few other brands, 805. Uh, but I, but I have to say, uh, none of those brands sell more than two million barrels for sure. Yeah. And it's a 200 million barrel uh, market that we have in the United States. Right. So if you're talking about a 10 million a barrel brand, a 50 million barrel brand, you know, like uh, some of the domestic loggers are. I, I think there was a time when we imagined craft would grow that big and that we would see something like a Sierra Nevada pale replacing a Bud Light. And to your point, it just hasn't happened. And it does. Yeah. It seems like there's a real ceiling on, on how many of those brands, how many barrels those brands can sell. And I was thinking of the perspective of the big macro brewers like Anheuser-Busch who have tried different ways to make that happen. And I've also thought about how, uh, again, Sierra Nevada is kind of the exception that proves the rule. You know, A number of big regional craft breweries that have tried to essentially become a national craft brewery that have never quite managed it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was basically my, my point. Um, and there was a lot of – there were a lot of – the other, the other um, class of – responses I got were a lot of these local say, well, we have a relatively low cost, sort of more more broadly popular local craft beer. And I get that too, but that's not, again, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that one beer that becomes, you know, something akin to a Budweiser or a Bud Light or whatever. Yeah, totally. And and I think you're exactly right. And it's something that I noticed when I went to, on my roadshow to Culmination Brewing, uh, which was there was this big crowd of people there, and they were not there for those kinds of beers. They were there for, I had a, a Grodziski, uh, which I, I actually learned from uh, Yarek Szymanski over at uh, Threshold Brewing. Um, he makes one, which I haven't had his yet. He's actually Polish. 
and it's pronounced radically differently than I've ever said, <laughs> I've ever seen. It's I and I, I read it. I'm like, I, what is that? That's just nothing like I I pronounce it. So <laughs> what you need to do is you need to record natives actually saying these words like quake. That would help be helpful. That's right. And then we can just plug. And it we just in. yeah exactly. We just splice them in. <laughs> I like that. That's brilliant. We'd be like, we'd but be, we'd be so awesome. Yeah, but the the reason people were going to Culmination was not because they wanted a Sierra Nevada Pale. That's that beer would not sell a Culmination. They would just sit there. No, not a single person would buy it. They wanted to try weird stuff, and they were, uh, you know, that's what you go to your local brewery for because you you can't get supermarket beer there. You go to your local brewery because you want something interesting and cool. So I'm with you. I think I think you sold the point. Yeah, I, I just think that that's you know it's a difference. I do think it's kind of a bifurcated market in that sense that people and I think this is this is this has been the evolution as well like i think there was a time at which it made sense that sierra nevada pale was sort of became that and this big national beer but now i think people are looking for a local experience looking for something unique something different something that's transient you know um uh, i mean temporarily transient like these little one-offs that local breweries brew and i just think that that's a different market now than than the big national mass market. And I just don't think that there is this nexus, this Venn diagram doesn't exist where there's this big middle middle intersection between the two. So there you go. Yeah. I have I have spoken. And thank you very much for your support. I appreciate that you you have my back on this one. Yeah, I think well, I think this <laughs> you know, you're a, you're an economist, you're a data guy, and I think the data just proves it. You know, if you can't get above, you know, Blue Moon has 2 million barrels in the United States. I mean, that's a that's a nice little that's a nice little product, but it ain't replacing Bud Light anytime soon. Right. Yeah. So the last point uh, in that long thread, I did pull one more comment out, which I thought had some interesting points, uh, which I've thrown on here. Uh, it's actually two tweets that I I've, I've glommed together. Um, uh-huh. So you can you can read that one. Okay. John from Ben says, unfortunately, my overarching theory is. Large regional breweries that haven't hit the jackpot with a radical offshoot like 805, Voodoo uh, Ranger, Voodoo Ranger, Hazy Little Thing, uh, or truly. <laughs> <laughs> Exclamation point he yes, puts in there uh, acknowledging how terrible that is. Yeah. Are kind of SOL. And the really good ones have used their hot, uh, by the way, SOL for our foreign listeners uh, means you're. Uh, out of luck. That's right. <laughs> Beep. Out of luck. Because I know um, our buddy from Denmark uh, right. is listening. All right. Uh, the really good ones have used their hot radical offshoot. Uh, you got to help me here. HROs from here on in. Oh, hot radical offshoots. I get it. Yeah. Uh, to get wholesaler focused on their flagships and get them into a state they wouldn't otherwise be. The old goose, you want Bourbon County, you got to take six kegs of IPA play. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, so there's I think there are two really astute points there that uh, these large regional breweries that built their brands on things like Sierra Nevada is a good example uh, built their brands on pale better come up with a hazy little thing or else they're SOL to use his language and right. it's really true we look at that and it's yeah. uh, it's really the case and then yeah this other point about this this coercive nature of of uh, uh, that that he used as as Goose Island uh, as an example I think it's really astute and uh, well said so. See, you say something smart, and then other people say smart stuff. That's how that's how social media works when it's really humming. Yeah, I will say that my timeline blew up, and there was you know disagreement. But the nice thing about beer Twitter is it's all reasonably uh, civilized. Yeah, right? Pe- people disagreed, but disagreed in a respectful way, which is so nice in this day and age. 
Uh, and they were on topic too. They were actually yeah. discussing the thing. They disagreed oh, yeah. about the topic, but they were saying, "I disagree with this point, and here's my point." And uh, that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's what. That's what. The, that's the. That's the promise of social media. <laughs> Reality, in too many cases, is it's terrible. But in this case, I was really uh, heartened by the fact that there was a, an interesting and lively debate that came up. So, yeah. All right. Well, that is the extent of the mailbag we have for this time. So, those of you who stayed with us all the way to the end can actually be <laughs> yeah we should be rewarded, rewarded with a real end yeah if i if i had been could if i'd been clever i would have i would have snuck in some just amazing tidbit of information here that only the the hardcore fans would have heard but i i failed so i didn't do that yeah we did but that's sort of par for the course absolutely uh all right oh yeah i guess we're done with our beer I'm yeah there's not. there's one more here we'll save because uh, okay. we're we're like seven hours in, and you know probably shouldn't crack this this beer. <laughs> All right, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We like the only like <laughs> from the beginning of the podcast is the one thing we actually synchronize well on. I know. <laughs> and and the thing is, on my deathbed, if I hear that wind up, I'm, I know, five stars, please. I can nail it. It's the one thing that makes us sound sort of semi-pro. That's true. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or on Twitter uh, at BeervanaPod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. Any tweets at Beervana? And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right, uh, so we both have this lovely wild Sun River Wild Series Dry Hop Saison. So uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>